read our sermon text, and you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 as our ongoing series through this wonderful book continues. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 918. It is perhaps one of the simplest texts that remains in a book that still has another almost 20 chapters left for us to consider as we look this morning at just verses 32 through 43, these two miracle stories. And you'll just want to pay attention as I read the passage and perhaps have in your own mind pricked the ways in which these miracle stories almost have identical correlating accounts in the gospel ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, thereby reminding us that Jesus continues to minister to his people even though he has ascended to the Father's right hand. So let me uh, read these verses for us and pray and we'll begin together. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, and he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Lord, we do praise you that your word is powerful, that it is perfect that is pure unto us, that it trains us for righteousness, it corrects us from our sin, it equips us for that which you have called us to in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that the Word itself this day would do that which, for which you send it into our hearts, that it would accomplish our salvation, our sanctification, that uh, we trust even in that promise that the Word will not return void. And so help us to hear with, with meekness and with gladness, with hearts of repentance, for me to preach as you say I must. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was about 18 years old, I gathered one summer for a number of weeks in California with 18 or so other soccer players from around the country. We went to this training center in California where we were going to train for a few weeks in preparation for this major tournament that we were soon to depart for. And 
In that camp, I had a roommate appointed to me. He was from the state of Washington. He was a player that I never roomed before in any of these camps. And uh, we knew each other by reputation. We had played against each other several times in uh, the previous years. And uh, the camp began as we gathered late in the afternoon, all there at the training center in California. And so all of the first day was, was just eating a team dinner and then having a team meeting and then uh, going to sleep and then uh, waking up the next day to really start the training. So I woke up the next day and uh, went to breakfast, gathered with some other players that were down there in the eating area, and uh, soon we departed to actually go off to the training field. And when it came time to train, uh, we began to realize that this player on the team, who happened to be my roommate, wasn't there. And he came bumbling in some 10 minutes after the training session began and promptly was put to extra fitness work, and I was promptly put to what we call in the soccer world as the hairdryer treatment uh, from the coach for leaving my roommate behind, for not taking care of him, frankly, for not getting him out of bed. And it was the first appearance of a problem that was to plague our relationship over the next few weeks because it was genuinely impossible. At least it seemed like it, and some of you might know what I mean, perhaps with a loved one or a child or a grandchild, to get the person out of bed in the morning. And I tell you that because we come to two stories, and among the many things that unite these stories is Jesus, through Peter, getting two people out of bed. So I eventually went to my roommate uh, sometime in that first week and said, what will it take for me to just get you out of bed when it's time to get out of bed? And it's almost as though the Spirit brings to you a text this morning that asks you a question right from the outside. What will it take? What does the Lord have to do to wake you up? What would we have to accomplish in your life? What would, we have, what would you have to observe in your life for you to turn to the Lord as so many did in those days so long ago in Lydda and Joppa? Some of you might hear a question like that and say, well, if the Lord restores this relationship, Oh, then I might look to him. Or maybe if he provided for me financially and material in a way he never has, maybe then I'll trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only when he puts this sin to death in my life, only when he brings me peace from all the opposition, hurt, and harm that is thrown my way, or only when he finally saves one of my loved ones, will I cling to him in the way I know that I must. What would it take for Jesus, to wake you up. Two stories before us today where people are waking up according to his grace ministered through this apostle named Peter. Now, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you probably remember that Peter has all but disappeared from the scene of Acts at this point in chapter 9. It's actually been a number of chapters and also in our course of studies a number of weeks before Peter has seemingly done much of anything in the advance of the gospel in the early church because in recent weeks we've been thinking particularly about these two other men, one named Stephen, a deacon who was a mighty preacher of Jesus Christ, so powerful in fact that he upset all of the religious leaders there in Jerusalem at the time. They became so enraged that they charged him 
with blasphemy. They took him outside of the city. They took their coats off and laid him at the foot of this other man we've been studying, this man named Saul, and they proceeded to throw rocks. Students, you, of course, remember uh, beating Stephen into this bloody pulp, and there was Saul approving of all of it. Saul, who was a protege of the famed rabbi Gamaliel. Saul, who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Saul, who says he was the most zealous of all the Pharisees in his generation. So zealous, in fact, that he wanted to leave Jerusalem and go to Damascus, a road trip of some 150 miles northeast, and there he was going to persecute the Christians. He was going to gather them up, bring them back to prison in Jerusalem, where presumably, based on what he later on says, he would vote for their execution. But kids, you remember, somewhere along the way, at midday, as Saul's on the way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this great bright white, Light. He stops Saul in his tracks and blinds him and simply asks a question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's a question that lead, leads to Saul's conversion. It's a conversion that led to Christ's commission. That was simply, Saul, you must go preach my name. You must carry my name to the Gentiles. And so we saw last week the early days of Saul's ministry in the middle part of chapter 9, where persecutor became the preacher, uh, the murderer became a minister, and it was a pattern of ministry that showed us in many ways what just the basics of a faithful and fruitful ministry entail. And when we get to chapter 9, verse 32, our text today, it's almost as Luke interrupts the narrative like this documentary narrator saying, and meanwhile, Peter was going here and there. Peter's going to interrupt the story and actually occupy the story for the next three chapters. And so it seems as though Luke wants us to know, his readers, who want those first century hearers to recall Peter's identity as an authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he puts together these two miracle stories to remind us of Peter's status in serving the Lord Jesus. But not just that, of course, as we'll see by the end, it's a collection of two miracle stories that's meant to tell us something about Jesus himself. Tell us something about his authority, something about his rule and, and reign. And it's, it's something that he's trying to tell us today that I just want to summarize with this simple statement. Jesus is sovereign over disease and death. I want to focus our attention this morning in this text on the sovereignty of our Savior. Now kids, whenever we say sovereignty, all we're saying is Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control. And what I want to do instead of work through it verse by verse, I want to take these two miracle stories together and pull out from them four simple truths about our Savior's sovereignty. Number one, he's sovereign over suffering. Number two, he's sovereign over the sign itself. Number three, he's sovereign over salvation. And number four, he's sovereign over his servants. So number one, he's sovereign over the suffering but you see what happens in verse 32. We're told Peter's going here and there among them all. And up until this point, it seems as though Peter's been confined to his ministry in Jerusalem. But where we left off last week in verse 31 of chapter 9, we're told that this peace, this profound harmony had come upon the church in Jerusalem and Judea and throughout Samaria, this area of Galilee. And so it's almost as though Peter now is going about in itinerant-like ministry, visiting the sick, ministering God's truth to his people. And notice what he encounters in verse 
32, he comes down to the saints at Lydda, and there he met a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, a man who was paralyzed. It's true that what you often find with the disciples in their ministry is they, they seem to often have this kind of mirroring reality that the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. And so as Peter's going about itinerating, it's not surprising, if you know anything about Jesus' ministry, that Peter quite quickly encounters a ministry that requires he care for sufferers. He cares for those who are suffering. In, in our church, there are a number of men that are training for the gospel ministry in a seminary context. Uh, there are others that are, are training to be an elder or a deacon, to be officers in a local church. And to you brothers, I would simply remind you, even from this text today, that so much of ministry for Jesus Christ is little more than ministry to suffering sinners and suffering saints. I, I think that's why even that uh, gospel ministers and even officers often encounter perhaps even an unusual amount of suffering because it's those who have suffered well that tend to be able to minister Christ's wisdom and grace to sufferers. And the first sufferer he encounters in our passage today is this man named Aeneas. He's bedridden. He's paralyzed children for the last eight years. By saying eight years, Luke wants us to make sure we realize this isn't just kind of some temporary paralysis. This has been going on for over 2,900 days. He's been on the bed there at Lydda. In that first century context, if you came across a paralytic, in almost all certainty, they were paralyzed either because of suffering a stroke or suffering from some great fall. Whatever the reason is, we don't know, but he meets this man named Aeneas. And if you notice our second story, he is going to eventually meet Peter, that is, another sufferer. Uh, this one is named Tabitha, which verse 36 says is translated as Dorcas. If you've ever had the chance to walk through a cemetery, I trust that you've noticed how much you can learn about a particular individual just from the tombstone. I mean, even the cut of the stone, the size of the stone, and the type of stone it tends to speak something about relative wealth, status, even poverty, of course, the dates on the stone tell you about the length of life. And families, when they are having to go about thinking about what's going to go on the tombstone, they only have so much room. They only have so many words they can get in there, and so they have to think carefully, don't they? Maybe you've even had to do this recently. What are going to be those phrases, uh, those words that summarize my loved one's life? You know, students, I hope you've even thought about that before. What, what words, phrases might summarize your life? Well, if you glance down at verse 36, we're told the words and phrases that summarize Tabitha's life. At the end of verse 36, we're told she was full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, said in language of the New Testament, here is the beauty of holiness, a life devoted to goodness, a life devoted to generosity. And if you glance down to verse 39, we're told that part of her generosity, part of her charity and mercy, was clearly making clothing for others in the congregation there at Joppa, particularly in her ministry and service to widows. Now, her name is Tabitha. It also can be translated as Dorcas, and both of those names just simply mean gazelle. And so, kids, when, when you think about a gazelle, what images or, or pictures leap into mind? 
And you probably think, don't you, about an animal that's elegant, that's energetic. Uh, the original world actually speaks about something related to the loveliness of the eyes. Uh, but there's no life in the eyes of Tabitha. As you'll notice, verse 37, In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Here then we have two stories of, of suffering. Here then we have two stories of Christ's sovereignty over suffering. Because what's getting ready to unfold tells us this, among other things we'll soon notice. It tells us that Aeneas was paralyzed. And Tabitha died precisely because God had decreed it to be so. Because he wanted to do something with the paralytic and the dead lady that would glorify his name and bring others to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that your Lord is sovereign over that kind of chronic sickness? Sovereign even over death. You know, you might have experienced in your own life a terminal diagnosis. You might be ministering to someone in your home that has a chronic illness. Do you believe that God has said, I'm sovereign, I'm in control of that? As a loved one died recently? Are you facing the expectation of a loved one dying soon? Do you believe that God says, I'm sovereign over that suffering? That suffering is going to glorify me. Satan, of course, will come along the way and twist that experience of suffering to get you to doubt God's goodness, to increase in bitterness, when all along the Lord is wanting you to understand I'm sovereign over that and it's giving you even more reason to cling to me to hope in me, to place your faith in me. So he's sovereign over the suffering. Uh, we see secondly that he's sovereign over the sign itself. For look at verse 34. Peter says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Hey, he doesn't say to Aeneas, Aeneas, I am Peter. I am the rock. I'm the leader and apostle in Jerusalem, the captain of Christ's twelve. Because that wouldn't do any good, would it? It's in the present tense. Aeneas, Jesus Christ is healing you right now. Peter had no more power in himself, did he, to raise Aeneas from his bed than a rooster crowing in the morning has power to raise the sun in the sky. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he has that power. He's sovereign over that sign. And it's the same thing in the case with Tabitha. Notice verse 40. Peter puts all of these mourners outside, much like it happened with Elijah and Elisha and Jesus having raised people from the dead and centuries and years past in Scripture. Well, Peter put them outside. He knelt down and prayed. One of the most beloved preachers in all of Scotland in the 19th century was this man named Horatius Bonar. He was particularly beloved, not really because of his preaching, but mostly because of his authoring of useful devotional books, and particularly his writing of hymns. A number of those hymns we even sing in our church today. And after a few years of serving as an assistant minister, he was called to be the minister at the church of Kelso. And when he came to preach his inaugural sermon, he took as his text Mark chapter 9, verse 29. And it's a sermon that's always stuck with me, not least of which is because of the text's simplicity, its clarity and urgency. For if you know the passage, it's just Jesus after a healing telling his disciples, this kind can be driven out only by prayer. 
And by preaching from that text in his inaugural sermon, what Bonar was telling his congregation is that a ministry of power always and only happens if it's, first and foremost, a ministry of, of prayer. And you see, don't you, that Peter seems to have learned that lesson well from Mark chapter 9. For he sends the people out, not that he might engage in some sort of secret sorcery and magic behind closed doors, as many might in the first century, but he kneels down. And he does the only thing that he can do, praise, certainly for the Lord to do the only thing that he can do, which is raise Tabitha from the dead. And you'll see that's exactly what happens at the end of verse 40. After he prayed, we don't know how long he prayed for, perhaps it was minutes, perhaps it was much longer than that. He said to her in a commanding, no doubt a compassionate tone, Tabitha, arise. Jesus is sovereign over the suffering. He's sovereign over the sign. If you look out on your life today, do you, do you see any place where perhaps God's blessing has come to your life? Maybe it's in your school. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in, in this church. And the Lord is sovereign over all of that, isn't he? Uh, we don't go about saying, look at what my hands have done. But we, with praise and gratitude, respond, look at what the Lord has done in our life. Uh, you need to get off the bed, Aeneas. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus Christ heals you. Tabitha, you need to get off the bed with new life. Lord, only you can supply that strength, and so I praying for it. We're told, number three, that he's sovereign over salvation because the news, not surprisingly, leaks out about what's happened. Notice what we're told in verse 35 related to Aeneas and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Surely it wasn't a situation of people coming along in the streets and on the byways and perhaps even along the highway saying, Did you hear what happened to Aeneas? Uh, perhaps it was more likely to say, Did you see what happened to Aeneas? As this one who had been crippled, paralyzed for eight years, is now walking and leaping and praising God in many people turned and believed, and the same thing happens. Notice verse 22 related to Tabitha, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The miracle, the sign, was meant for people to be saved. Isn't that so often what happens in Jesus' ministry? The miracle, the sign, happens for you to know the truth of who Jesus is. Only a few chapters later, something is going to happen in chapter 13, and we're told that all who are appointed for salvation believed. Uh, we can be sure that there in Lydda and there in Joppa, all those that God had chosen for salvation believed. It's why even in Joppa it says many believed. I wonder if you would be counted among those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in hearing this truth of what our Lord Jesus Christ does for his people and his power for his own, do you respond with a heart of faith and repentance or perhaps like others in those cities so long ago. They hear about Aeneas and they notice Tabitha risen from her bed and they simply say, hey, you know, that's kind of interesting. That's pretty amazing. Well, now leave me alone. Let me go back to what I'm most passionate about. I wonder if you've responded to his sovereignty and salvation. Well, the fourth thing that I want you to show related, I want you to see related to Christ's sovereignty is he's sovereign over his servants. It comes in the very last verse. Uh, we're told that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. 
Now, children, do you know what a tanner is? It's simply someone that works with dead animal skins to make leather from them. And you need to know that in that ancient world, being a tanner was to be occupied in one of the most looked down upon trades. It was one, of course, that mean you were always around dead animals, not least of which is meaning you were always around these rather not so pleasant smells. Even the Judean professional, professionals of the time were so opposed to tanners as what they said was if the tanner's wife could no longer put up with the smells, she had free license to divorce him. And yet here is Peter staying with someone that many a Jew would say is ritually unclean. That's surprising. I mean, Peter's trade is what? Do you remember? A fisherman. Joppa's right on the Mediterranean Sea. You would would think that he'd be staying with some fisherman buddies, but here he is at a tanner's house. And if you went to Peter perhaps at that time, you would think, why are you doing that? Well, because the Lord has placed me here, even in his very presence at Simon the Tanner's house, it's beginning to show us in picture what Peter is going to learn himself in the next chapter, that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to even the unclean. But it's also true that it was there in Joppa that he was going to be close enough to Caesarea, a place from which a centurion would soon come calling. Maybe the Lord has put you in a place that seems together or altogether random. It doesn't really make sense why you're here and not there. Why you're doing this and not that. Do you know that the Lord's sovereignty is so all-encompassing and all-comprehensive that it is appropriate to say he has you right where he wants you to be? And perhaps in time, not so far into the distant future, you will then look back and say, it makes sense now. Why for maybe years, he had me somewhere where I didn't want to be. Because it was only there that he was going to begin to work out his sovereign purpose in my life. So he's sovereign, isn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's sovereign over disease. He's sovereign over death. I mean, he's sovereign over all sufferers, over all of his signs, over anyone who is saved, and over all of his servants in their ministry too. Tomorrow morning, a Lord willing, bright and early, our family departs for first vacation in quite some time. We are going to visit family in Colorado, and after that, we're going to just go further north than we've ever been. We lovingly call our our large family van the Black Beast, and the Black Beast is going to chew up some over 3,000 miles along the way in the coming weeks, and with six young kids, many people say, well, what do you do with all that time in the car? And as many of you might realize, you often just encourage them to stare out the windows, Let's see who can see the first mountain off in the horizon. Who's the first one that's going to spot the state line when it approaches? And of course, hours will pass by staring out the windows at something rather glorious. Because the point of windows is this, isn't it? Not to stare at them, but through them. And the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ are like windows. You're not meant to stare at them, but through them who he is. And as we begin to close, I want you to see two things from this passage about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. These windows, these miracles worked through Peter tell us something about our sovereign king, don't they? Number one, it shows us that he has the power to reign. He is in charge 
of his church. He rules over his people. When he ascended to heaven at the beginning of this book, that didn't mean that he gave up his authority. Rather, he was seated in authority next to the Father's right hand. And so, although he's absent, what does he keep doing? He keeps ruling over his people by his word and spirit. He is absent from us in body, isn't he? But he continues to rule over his people, even this day, in the exact same way, by his word and spirit. And that brings us to the second thing, and perhaps the primary thing you need to see here, is that uh, we need to see not only he has the power to rule, that he rules with resurrection power. He has resurrection power. Because, of course, he only has the power to rule if he was raised from the grave. He's only ascended to the Father's right hand if he was raised from the grave. And do you notice the theme of resurrection that belongs to this passage? What does he say to Aeneas? Rise. What does he say to Tabitha? Arise. And people have often made this kind of joke of sorts of the apparent impossibility of getting anyone to make their bed when Peter says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. But the point of making the bed was that Aeneas didn't need it anymore in the same way. A made bed declared what? He's not paralyzed anymore. I wonder if you're in here today paralyzed by sin and the Lord in his resurrection power given to you through the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, rise and put that to bed. At your anger, your bitterness, your grumbling, your complaining, your lust, rise. No longer be paralyzed because Christ has defeated not only death but sin, but he has defeated death. So you might be in here today and you're actually more like Tabitha than Aeneas, uh, you're, you're dead spiritually. Uh, he summons you through his son, Jesus Christ, and the preaching of his gospel and the ministry of his spirit that you might wake up for the first time. For our passage is intended to function as something like a spiritual alarm clock that you would get up and walk from death into life. That you would turn from that path of destruction and turn to that narrow road that leads to salvation. And it should encourage us, shouldn't it, this resurrection power of Jesus Christ because it's telling us, the gospel and the rest of the New Testament, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. He's going to raise his children. He's going to raise his people to everlasting life with him. So notice what Peter does in verse 41. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And do you know because of his resurrection authority and his sovereignty, he's going to do the exact same thing Jesus Christ will at the last day. He will go to his people. Take my hand. Let me raise you up and present you holy, blameless, blessed for all eternity in the presence of my Father. Do you know that he is sovereign over disease and death? Do you find immense comfort in this sovereignty? Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would give us that mercy and grace that is available only in Jesus Christ, that we too, in ways that are eternally necessary, might wake up from our sin, might wake up from our slumber, that Christ would shine upon us. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.